Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, good morning. My name is Drew Bennett, one of the pastors here. It's good to see you this morning. Um, we are excited about what God is doing. If you were able to worship with us last Sunday night, uh, it was a fantastic time together in Lakeland. About 850 people came together to celebrate Trinity Presbyterian's 20th anniversary and also look forward um, to what we hope God will do in our county. If you want a measure of how, how God is working, there's somebody dreaming about planting a church in Mulberry, Florida. You with me? I mean, what good could come out of Mulberry, as they say in the scriptures, right? As far, but there's a guy who is a talented guy who is dreaming about that place because it was the place that he uh, grew up. What an amazing thing. He loves Bradley Junction. That's actually where he lived. So just think about that. God is doing neat stuff. We continue this morning. Uh, in a series in Psalm 23, I've heard from many of you that this has been very helpful to you. Man, that's so, I'm so glad for that. Uh, it has been for me too. Uh, and so this morning, we're just going to kind of, we've been going very slow, kind of a verse per week. But actually, this morning, we're going to go back into verse 4 and look at one phrase because it is so striking. So our attention this morning is going to be on the, the very end of verse 4, uh, where, where David says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. But um, we're, going to, we're going to do what we've been doing every week, and that is to read the whole psalm together, because we're memorizing this together as a church. And so I hope you're doing that with us, and you have the little memorization cards. But if you would, uh, as we've been doing, I'd ask you to stand. We're going to recite the psalm together. So practice, do as much of it as you can by memory, but just in case you get tripped up, it'll be on the screen behind me, and you can find it in your worship folder as well. But let's read together uh, the word of the Lord. Hear, hear God's word, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, a long-held practice of the Christian faith is a practice that we call meditation. Now, in Eastern mysticism, meditation requires that you empty your mind of, of all consciousness and look within. Uh, Christian meditation is, is really the exact opposite. Christian meditation refers to filling your mind with who God is and what he's done as he's revealed to himself in, in his word. So it's not looking in, it's looking up, and it's not emptying your mind, it's filling your mind with, with your theology and so forth. And so Christian meditation is talking to your heart instead of listening to your heart. And Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote an entire book called Spiritual Depression. It's probably one of my top five uh, most impactful books for me all time about this very thing. And he said that the only way to find peace and joy and so forth in the middle of the hard stuff in life is to take yourself in hand. Um, he said most of our unhappiness in life is due to the fact that we're listening to our hearts as they ramble on about all the things we're afraid of rather than talking to our hearts about what we know to be the truth. So meditation is the spiritual discipline of talking to your heart about the gospel. 
reminding your heart of what you know. And, and, and this is exactly what you have here in Psalm 23. David is meditating on the providence of God. Now, if you've been reading with us in 2 Samuel in our community Bible reading, and I hope you have, you know that for most of David's life, he, he was on the run as a young man. He was running from King Saul, who was threatened by his popularity and success. And so Saul's seeking his life, and David's hiding out in caves, and, and uh, not very much is going well for him. But as an old man, we ran this past week, he has to run from Absalom, his son, who wanted his throne. And so there were, there were many shadowy valleys that he had to walk through in his life, and yet he was a man of incredible faith. Now, how is that? It's because he learned the practice of meditation. I mean, David is the one who gave us the Psalms for the most part, which are meditations. And most of the time, the psalmists, it's interesting if you read it carefully, you'll notice that David and the other psalmists, a lot of when they're, when they're penning words, they're, they're talking to uh, themselves. They're, they're not necessarily praying. They aren't all prayers. Sometimes they're talking to God, but a lot of the time they're talking to their own hearts. And in some psalms, they kind of go back and forth. And so you have places like Psalm 42, verse 5, where the psalmist says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. You see, he's turning on his heart, and he's, he's, he's addressing the, the issues of his own heart. Or Psalm 103 is another example. Verses 1 and 2, Bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his benefits. What's he doing? He's calling his, he's calling his soul forth to remember all the things that God has done for him and to, you know, and to um, express its joy and gratitude to God. So Psalm 23, if you pay attention, if you notice, at least in the first four verses, now it changes a little bit in verse 5, but it's not a prayer proper. It's a meditation I mean, David goes back and forth between talking to God about his heart and talking to his heart about God. And that really, I guess, is the best kind of praying. But he's taking himself in hand. He's not allowing how he's feeling to dominate his life. He's reminding himself of the truth in order to get his feelings in line with who he knows God to be. And we've said again and again in this series that Psalm 23 is an extended argument for trusting God. It's piece after piece of evidence for why you should live by faith and not by sight. Uh, one writer said, faith is unbelief kept quiet. There's a, there's a dampening of unbelief in the soul that you have to really work hard at because your heart is constantly rising with fears and accusations and worries and so forth. And so faith is the activity of dampening that unbelief in your own, in your own heart by reminding yourself constantly of what you know to be true of God. You have to exercise faith. And that's what you see David doing in these verses. He's reasoning with his heart. He's reassuring his heart. One argument after another for why God is deserving of his trust. And we come this morning to the phrase at the end of verse 4. So he's said all of these things, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for you are with me. And then we come to the phrase, for your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And we're just going to park right there this morning. And the basic argument, if you've been here these weeks with us, that I've been making is this, that you should trust God because he is able and he is willing to take care of you. He is both able and he is willing to provide for you. He is both able and he is willing to work good things 
and work things for good in your life, no matter what bad circumstances you find yourself in. He is the Lord, which means he has all power and authority to always be doing good to you. But he is the Lord, your shepherd, which means he has the heart to always be doing good to you. He loves you. He walks through deep, dark valleys with you, so trust him. Obey him. Give your life to him. Live for him. Take your hands off your life. Stop trying to control everything. Put your life in his hands. But for you to do that, you have to know. You have to know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, you have to know that he is powerful and he's good. You have to be confident of that. And what happens in the psalm is, I think most of us have been tracking. It's why many of you have said to me, this has been really helpful. Um, you know, it's been, it's been encouraging my faith. I find myself believing more and more. But what, it comes to a screeching halt. We hit a snag right here in the middle of verse 4 when David mentions God's rod and his staff. And he says, your rod and your staff, they are a comfort to me. And this, this is alien atmosphere for us. It's a paradigm-shifting truth that warrants our spending an entire Sunday just talking about it because we are submerged in a culture that has a very specific definition of love. It's very narrow, and it's very unbiblical. Uh, We now react so strongly to any type of censoring or criticism. I mean, the unforgivable sin in our society is to look at someone else that you might disagree with and say you're wrong because... Love doesn't do that. And we should be all about love. Love doesn't seek to correct others. It never says no, so the culture says. And and what I would have you reflect on is where there are no moral absolutes. And that's what we've done. We've thrown out as a culture any idea that there's anything, anything like a moral absolute. And where there's a vacuum of moral absolutes, if you disagree with someone uh, or seek to correct them, then automatically it feels as if you're judging them. It's a power play. It's, you're coming from a place of superiority in that. And, and so, you know, every, every type of correction or disagreement is seen as one person judging the other. And, of course, if you're judging, then you are worthy of immediately being judged as thinking that you're better than everybody else, whether it was your intention or not. And this is why things are such a mess. This is why there's so much outrage. Everybody is so red in the face all the time. It's exhausting. Is anybody else exhausted? It's exhausting. And the definition and the rules of love in our culture have completely shut down the exchange of ideas and debate because what we've done is we've made truth and love an either-or, not a both-and equation. We've, we've, we've made truth and love incompatible to one another. And so to do the one, you have to throw out the other. So basically, you're giving, you're, the culture says this to you. Choose. Choose. Choose to do one or the other. Throw out any concept of truth and just love people or cling to the truth and be vilified. Those are the options. Those are the options we're given But here's what I have to tell you this morning. This is not at all the way the Bible defines love. The Bible says that loving someone means desiring and working for their flourishing. The Bible also says that we were created, that we are not self-defined, that there is, in fact, a reality. There is a metaphysical truth. There is a design to the universe. Uh, And the only way to flourish is to be in alignment with that design. So if you buy a car, we all know this, you get an owner's manual written by the makers of the car to tell you how the car works. They know how the car works. Why? 
They built the car. God made us, and so he knows how we work. And if you try to run a car on Diet Coke instead of gas, what's going to happen? You're not going to get very far, are you? It's going to break down. And if you try to live apart from God's commandments, you'll break down too. The Bible further says that we hate this. That we are in denial about this. We're always trying to turn to our own way, ignoring the owner's manual and trying to make up our own rules. And that's where all of our sadness comes from. And further, the Bible says, we don't self-correct. Once we get out of alignment, we can't, we can't correct the problem. We, in other words, we need to be helped by someone else to see the truth about our lives so that we can come back into alignment with God's design. It's the only way it happens. So all of that leads to a very important you know, doctrine, I guess, or a very important argument that I'd like to make with you this morning, just on a horizontal level before we even talk about the way God deals with us, and that is that the people who love you best are the ones who are willing to love you tough. Always. Only the people who love you tough can claim to really be the people that truly love you. All love is tough love. You see that introduction? That was just the little point I made there in the introduction. All love is tough love. No, no offense to James, James Dobson, who wrote the book. All love is tough love. And you know you have a really good friend in someone who's willing to be rough with you, who will get in your face, tell you the things you don't want to hear, because that's an important part of loving someone. But you see, the culture rejects this, and our hearts don't want it to be true either. And so we have a lot of obstacles to this. But, but what, what we learn here in this little phrase at the end of verse 4 here is that God's love for us is tough love. And you, you have to know that if you're going to trust him. You have to know that. If you miss that piece, there's going to be too many things that go a certain way in your life, and it's going to shake your confidence in his love. You have to know uh, the way that he loves you. You have to know that his love really at the end of the day is tough love. And so we're just going to kind of exegete this little phrase. We're going to do so by looking also at the Hebrews 12 passage because the Hebrews 12 passage is a really important passage, I think, for our day and time. We, we need to come back to it over and over again. And so we're using... Hebrews 12, to really meditate on Psalm 23, verse 4, this little phrase here. And I just want to ask and answer two questions. I want to ask, uh, what are God's rod and staff that David talks about here? So what are the rod and the staff? Secondly, how is it that he can say and that we can, after him, say that God's rod and staff are a comfort? So what are God's rod and staff, and how can they become a comfort to us? Those are just the two points this morning. So let's, let's take uh, some time to do this together first. What are the rod and staff? Let's define uh, those images there uh, and just take them one at a time. So you look there, verse 4. The, the rod mentioned refers to a mace or a club. It was a weapon the shepherd would use um, he, he would, to, to fight off predators that might come to threaten the flock. So you see the importance in the text. If you, if you walk back through verse 4 again... He, David's saying, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because the shepherd is there with me. And even better, he's not only there with me, he's armed. And he can take care of whatever comes after me. He has the ability to protect me from whatever might try to harm me. So the rod is a symbol of God's power, his ability to protect and defend his people from any danger that might come against them. And it's why David says the shepherd's rod is a comfort to him. Now, we've talked about this at length already in this series, so I want to go a little bit beyond it. 
And I want to just, I want to venture something with you. And I want to say, all the commentators agree. These books I'm reading about, guys that, have, that are shepherds, that are meditating on Psalm 23. Uh, the other part of this is at times, the shepherd is forced to use the rod on the sheep. To discipline them, give them a little whack. That's the rod. The staff, is, uh, is a, it would be carried in the other hand, it was a long stick with a crook at the end, and the crook would allow the shepherd to grab a hold of a wandering sheep and yank it back into line, or to reach down um, into a hole or a pit that the sheep might fall into and, and uh, cradle the lamb and lift it back up to safety. And so together, the rod and the staff are the tools of the shepherd's management and discipline of the sheep. That's really what's being taught here. Uh, his management and his discipline of the sheep. They are the, the tools that allow the shepherd to get the sheep to go in the direction that he wants them to go. And so let me summarize. I've said David is meditating on God's providence here. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. Follow the argument with me, okay? The Lord is my shepherd. He takes care of all of my needs. He makes me safe so that I can lie down and take a break. He's always with me. So I don't ever have to be afraid. And even if I get out of line, listen, David says, even, even if I ever get out of line and I start to get myself into trouble, I know that he'll be there to whack me back into shape so that I learn my lesson. And that's how I know he loves me. Isn't that amazing? So you see, for David, God, the promise, the promise, it was a promise. The promise of God's discipline was strong evidence to David's heart for God's love for him. And this is the argument of Hebrews 12, too. It says, verses 7 and 8, What son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, then you are an illegitimate children and not sons. Fathers, Hebrews says, discipline their children because they love them. A father that doesn't discipline his children isn't a very good father. And a child left without discipline will end up being a not very good child. In fact, it leads to miserableness in the child. She will develop all kinds of self-destructive behaviors that should have been driven out by the rod. And good parents bring suffering. Teenagers pay attention. Good parents, mine too, I only have one of mine. You know, good parents bring suffering into the lives of their kids as a consequence of wrong behavior. Because if parents shield their children from suffering, they ruin them. Parents have to be more concerned with the child's character than with their happiness. And so the, the teaching of the text is that discipline and love go together. It's the plain teaching of the entire Bible. And it, it, you know, David says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I mean, studies, I'm sure you're aware, studies have concluded that, that a lack of parental discipline creates insecurity in children because um, the opposite of love isn't anger. The opposite of love isn't discipline or, or disapproval. The opposite of love is indifference. And kids who do wrong uh, and then don't experience their parents' anger at the wrong they've done don't feel love. They feel ignored. Because the way the human heart operates, kids who do something wrong, they know they've done wrong. They know it merits their parents' anger. They're expecting their parents to be angry. They, they want their parents to be angry. Because it means they love them. 
And young parents are slow to discipline because they're afraid of destroying their relationship with their kids, but the discipline is a crucial part of displaying their love. It establishes the relationship. And so discipline and love go together. It makes sense. It's a hard spot for churches, too. Listen, churches are places of grace where people can love, can experience love and acceptance and inclusion no matter what sins they struggle with. But churches are also places of discipline. I mean, according to the Protestant reformers, church discipline was one of the three main marks of the true church alongside of preaching and the sacraments. If there wasn't discipline, it's not a true church, the reformers said, because discipline and love always go together. So the argument that David is making throughout Psalm 23 is that you should trust God because he loves you. And one of the ways that you can be sure that he loves you is that he will discipline you. He will give you a little smack with the rod when you start to head in the wrong direction. He'll reach out and he'll grab a hold of you with the staff and yank you back from danger. And he does this, just like parents do, by allowing suffering to come into your life. See, there's a connection in the text between the shadowy valleys that Brandon talked about last week and the, the, the rod. Uh, the shadowy valleys there in verse 4, the, the times of darkness and deep sadness and struggle, they are God's rod. So the teaching of Psalm 23, 4 is that God sends us into suffering. Did you hear that? God himself sends us into these times. He leads us, by implication from the text, into dark valleys of death. But he always goes with them through us. He sends suffering, but he never leaves our side in the midst of it. So God's love, here's where we have to change the way we think about these things. God's love is measured by his presence, not by the landscape we're traveling through. Okay? His love, his love should be measured by the sense of his presence and not the landscape that we're traveling through. And that's a hard teaching. Can I get a few nods? Is that a hard teaching? I mean, when you experience God's rod, it should make you love him more. You should trust him because he does this. Kids... (laughs) You're going to get a kick out of this, but if you were in touch with reality, kids, if you were in touch with reality, when your parents disciplined you, you would hug them and kiss them and say, thank you for loving me so well. It's true. It's absolutely true. No kid does that. Because the human heart doesn't operate that way. But if you and I, if you and I, if we were in touch with reality at all, when we experience the disciplining hand of our loving Heavenly Father, we would run to him and hug him and say, thank you for loving me so well. Discipline should be the cause of your love for God and not the obstacle, but man, isn't that hard? And, and uh, there's a story that I want to tell you uh, that, that illustrates well the reason this is hard. I've used this story before. It's one of these stories, kind of part of my job is to kind of load your imagination up with stories that can help you uh, walk, make sense of faith and really, and really use throughout your life. And one of them is this story from Elizabeth Elliot. She told about a sheep farmer in, in northern Wales, and every year the sheep farmer would take the sheep, and one of the things they had to do is they had to dunk the sheep into a huge vat of antiseptic and uh, unfortunately, what the shepherd had to do was completely submerge the sheep in this, this gross, you know, chemically liquid. 
so that every inch of their body was covered. Because if there was just a little bit, a little bit that didn't get covered by the antiseptic, the, the, the worms and the parasites and the insects would find it and would begin to eat away at the sheep. And so Elizabeth Elliot describes the scene. She says, one by one, John, the shepherd, sees the animals. They would struggle to climb out of the side, and Mac, the sheepdog, would snarl and snap at their faces to force them back under. When they tried to climb up the ramp in a panicky way at the far end, John would catch them, spin them around, force them under, underneath the water again, holding their ears and eyes and nose submerged for a few seconds. And, and this is Elizabeth Elliot. She's, she's just marvelous. She said, and as their Lord and Master was pushing their head under, drowning them at least as far as they could tell, their panicky little eyes would look up over the edge of the vat, and it was easy to see what they were thinking. What is God doing? She goes on to reflect. She says, I've had some experiences in my life which have made me feel very sympathetic to those poor sheep. There are times I couldn't figure out any reason for the treatment I was getting from my great shepherd whom I trusted. And like these sheep, I didn't have any hint of an explanation. The shepherd, she says, has to do this to the sheep, but there's no way the sheep can understand. There are really only two options. They can not get the antiseptic treatment and die, or they can trust the shepherd without explanation, and those are the only two options. The whole problem is that there's a gap between the intelligence of the sheep, shepherd and the intelligence of the sheep. And here's, here's her home run. She says, and those are the same choices we have, because there's a bigger gap between us and our great shepherd in heaven. And so many of the things that he does in our lives, she says, we may never understand, we may never know. But here's, here's the point she's making that I would just make to you this morning. The times God loves you the best, it might feel like he's trying to kill you. But the times you're most tempted to doubt his loving care for you, Probably those are the times that he is most proving himself to you, if you had eyes to see. But you don't know all he knows. So trust him. David sings, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So God's rod and staff mean there are times when he will lead us into suffering as a means of discipline without any other explanation. And I don't know about you. But i got to be honest with you this morning, that, that's scary to me. That unnerves me. Anybody else? That unnerves me. But David, see, David says, oh, it's a comfort. And so there's still a huge gap between my response and his. And there will be days of living and lying down in green pastures, and there will be days of passing through shadowy valleys. And David says that you should trust God's leadership and care in both. In fact, you should trust him more because he doesn't avoid the valleys. His rod and his staff should be a source of comfort to us, David says, the assurance that he's committed to doing good to us above just making us happy. He wants, listen to me, he wants your character more than he wants your happiness. He wants you to be in heaven with him forever more than he wants you to enjoy a trouble-free life on earth. And that's a good thing. And so we should respond as David does, but in truth, most of us don't. We're just not there yet. And what you see in the Hebrews 12 passage is that we're given three wrong responses to the rod. And so we're going to look at each of those just very quickly. But you'll find them there in verse 5 of Hebrews 12 and then down in verse 15. 
And I'll read it to you. Hebrews, the Hebrews uh, writer says this again. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. See to it that no one fa- fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. So three, three, um, three responses that, that each characterize a hard heart towards uh, God's way of working uh, in our lives. Uh, so let's just look at each of them first. Hebrews cautions us to first not despise God's discipline. In other words, don't fail to take it seriously, he says. Don't undervalue this way of God's working in your life. I mean, that's the way of the fool in Proverbs who is just fine on his own. You know, he's got it all figured out. He's got it all under control. He doesn't need anyone telling him what to do. The Bible says that children need to be fathered because foolishness is bound up in their hearts and will get them into all kinds of trouble unless through consistent, patient discipline that foolishness is rooted out of them. So teenagers... Don't pull away from your parents. Don't ignore their wisdom in this hard time in your life where it feels like you're an adult, but you're not quite there yet. You need them. But let's not be too hard on the teenagers. Christian, don't spend all of your time and energy trying to wiggle your way out of whatever hard thing God has put you in. Don't dream about different circumstances. Put all of your energy into getting character. John Piper wrote a little article years ago. He's a pretty provocative guy. Have you picked up on that, if you know him? It can be a little hard. Um, but he, uh, he had a cancer diagnosis, and his response to it was write uh, a little article, and the title of the article was, Don't Waste Your Cancer. Uh, and he wrote it on the eve of his own cancer surgery, and his point was this. He said, the hard times God brings, even the really hard times, they're good. They're full of really important lessons, and so learn the lessons they bring. And so as an example, and I love this, he said, uh, you beat cancer not by staying alive, but by learning to cherish Christ more because of it. If you love God more, and there are people, there are people in our congregation that, that, are, that are fighting cancer, uh, and, and the lesson is if you love God more because of cancer or whatever hard thing, if you love God more because of cancer, whether you live or whether you die, you win. So don't despise God's discipline. Don't waste your suffering, Piper says. Don't think only of how to get out of it. Stay in it. Be grateful for it. Learn whatever he's trying to teach you in it. So you can despise God's discipline, and that's a wrong response. The second wrong response uh, is that Hebrews also cautions against fainting or wilting under God's discipline. And this refers to being discouraged or giving up or growing cynical, giving into hopelessness. And, And typically, the more religious you are, Uh, the more prone you will be to this because it's easy to lose sight of God's love and begin to blame yourself. Because a religious person has a certain bargain with God. I'm going to be a good person and then you can kind of make sure that my life goes exactly the way that I need for it to. And when that that, that thing starts to not work out, well, one of the things you can do is you can turn on yourself. And, And you can say, God must hate me. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm not as good as I thought I was. Maybe, well, I mean, I wonder what it is in my life that, that he's so mad at that he's, trying, that he's punishing me for. And you start to go through your life with a fine-tuned comb to discover which sin or bad decision that God is angry with you about. Because if you believe that God's love is conditional on your obedience, then suffering means that you're, you're, you're being punished like a judge would punish a criminal for doing something bad. And you lose sight of his heart, and it's easy to faint into self-loathing, into despair. 
That's not at all how we should react, Hebrews says. And so don't despise and don't faint or wilt. And then the third caution that Hebrews gives is against growing bitter or resentful. He says, don't, don't let a root of bitterness grow up. And James Davidson Hunter um, has a great definition of this. He says that it is grounded in a narrative of injury. These are his words, or of perceived injury, which becomes a strong belief that one has been or is being wronged. He says the root, the root of this bitterness described here is a sense of entitlement. So Hebrews says, don't start thinking of yourself when things are hard in your life as a victim. So here's the person who thinks they're owed a good life. Again, probably most times a religious person who the bargain, again, is, God, I'm going to be a good person, and then that's my part of the deal, your part of the deal is, in response to me, you know, doing everything you told me to do, then you're just going to make sure my life kind of is easy and goes the way I want it to. And when it doesn't turn out that way, when you think you're owed a good life, and it's not turning out that way, things just there's a long list of things that didn't happen the way that you wanted them to, well, then, then you can get angry about it. I mean, when thing goes, things go bad like this, there's only really two options. You can get mad at yourself. Maybe you're not as good as you thought you were. That's the, that's the fainting or in, in despair, or you get mad at God. I mean, you've kept your part of the gar- bargain, but, but he's not keeping his. You don't deserve to be treated the way you're being treated. It's unfair. And so Hunter goes on to say this perceived injustice becomes central to the person's identity. It, becomes, it just becomes the lens uh, through which you think about yourself, through which you think about everybody else in your life through, through which you think about your whole life and it's called a root of bitterness because it grows in the, the subterranean parts of your life and spreads out and starts to affect everything. It affects the way you view the way other people treat you. You get mad at everybody but if you're honest you're really mad at God. It's not their fault. It's really his hands that have done these things to you and all of life is soured. It becomes a campaign of negativity and accusation to regain the control that has been lost. So bitterness is a way of grieving our impotence like the mother who was once powerfully in control of her children and then the husband or the wife comes along and she has to take the back seat to the new spouse. I'm sure none of you have experienced that good mothers too often become bitter mother-in-laws. It's just a little example of the way we deal with, with losing control in our lives, don't let bitterness grow, Hebrews says. And each of these is a hard-hearted response to God's rod and staff, but instead of being hard-hearted, God's rod and staff should give us tender hearts. That's what David's teaching here. Listen to the psalmist again, uh, Psalm 1971. This is one of those verses that is just inexplicable in many ways, but the psalmist says, it is good for me that I was afflicted. Do you hear that? Listen to the psalmist. It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. That's a tender heart. He says, obedience is better than comfort. Flourishing, flourishing is holiness, not being, not, not being afflicted. Flourishing is holiness, it's learning the lessons, it's character, it's not not being afflicted. So David says, you're on your staff, they comfort me. So we just have to finish very quickly with this sense of how. How does God's rod and staff become a comfort to you? How can you find yourself in hard times and, and not faint, not become bitter, but be grateful for what God is doing with you? And the answer to that is you have to know the hand that holds the rod, and you have to know the purpose of the rod. And that's the application of the text, and we're just going to finish there. 
You have to know the hand that holds the rod because the rod is scary. It's a scary symbol, isn't it? In the hands of an offended sovereign, the rod is retribution. In the hands of an angry judge, the rod is punitive. But in the, but, but in the hands of a good shepherd, in the hands of a loving father, the rod is a comfort. And in Hebrews 12, it is in the hands of your father in heaven. And that makes all the difference in the world if you're, if you're not a Christian. Uh, you're suffering, you know, well, let me put it this way. If, if you are a Christian, if you're here and your faith is in Jesus and you're in Christ, then your suffering is not a punishment. It's not, it's not being held over your head like that. The gospel is this. The gospel is that the rod of God's just condemnation of your sins came down upon Jesus on the cross. Amen? That's an amen moment. The rod of God's just condemnation of your sins came down upon Jesus on the cross, which means that every stroke to you is a stroke of love. Jeremiah Burroughs, who, wrote, uh, who preached a series of sermons in the middle of the plague in Europe where every week dozens of his congregants were dying, he, talked about, he decided to talk about contentment to his church in the middle of that. Puritans did weird things. I don't know how those people had anybody going to come to their church. But he, he, he preached a sermon, another one of my probably top five books, the, the Secret of Contentment by Jeremiah Burroughs. And he said this, he said, the truth, the truth is that the afflictions of God's people come from the same eternal love that Jesus Christ came from. Jerome said, he's quoting Jerome, he is a happy man who is beaten when the stroke is a stroke of love. Listen to his words again. All God's strokes are strokes of love and mercy. All God's ways are mercy and truth to those that fear and love him. The ways of God, the way of affliction as well as the way of prosperity, are mercy and love to him. Grace gives man an eye, a piercing eye into the counsel of God to see those eternal counsels of God for good to him. Even in his afflictions, he can see the love of God in every affliction as well as in every prosperity. See, if you're a Christian and you're wondering, why is this happening to me? Why would God do this? The answer is very clear from Hebrews chapter 12. God is treating you as sons. Where does suffering come from? If your faith is in Jesus, it comes from the loving hand of your heavenly Father. And what is the purpose? Well, Hebrews 12 helps us here too. It says that God allows deliberately painful things in our lives so that we might be, verse 11, very important, so that we might be trained by them. And that word there, I can't make this up, guys. That word there, trained, is the Greek word that literally is translated gymnasium. If there's hard stuff happening in your life, you know what God's doing? He's taking you to the gym. That's the image. I mean, why do you go to the gym? Well, usually it's because, you know, you're unhealthy, you're out of shape, you're a little flabby, or you're weak. There's drooping hands, we're told there, which means flabbiness, weak knees, which means paralysis in the Greek. There's a lack of physical health, so you head to the gym. Well, when there's a lack of spiritual health, God sends suffering. And in bringing the suffering, he takes you to the gym where you get to address the weakness so that after a while, you start to get stronger. I mean, if you don't go to the gym, you're avoiding short-term pain, but you're training it for long-term pain. The gym is short-term pain for long-term health and happiness and flourishing. And that's, that's the teaching. I mean, what happens to a lump of coal that's put under enormous pressure? It becomes a diamond. 
Jesus Christ took away the only kind of suffering that can really destroy us. The pain of being cast away from God. And now if your faith is in Jesus, none of your suffering is that. Jesus took that for us on the cross. He didn't suffer so that we wouldn't. He suffered to redeem suffering so that suffering would make us beautiful because holiness is better than happiness. If you prefer happiness, the rod will scare you to death. But if you desire holiness, by the way, if you desire holiness without which no one will see the Lord, we're told here, then it will become a comfort to you because that is the grace of God. That is the grace of God, what I'm talking about. He says, make sure no one misses the grace of God. The grace of God is that your suffering has been redeemed. Now, no dark valley that you ever go through can separate you from God's love. Not even death. And so Paul says, we truly, we truly are more than conquerors through him who loves us. That is the life being offered to us this morning. And so let's pray as we get ready to come to this table. Will you pray with me? So, Father, thank you for these great words of assurance and hope. Thank you for your great love for us, which includes the times of discipline that you bring into our lives. Thank you for the way you love us uh, at our very worst, that our very worst activates your love for us. It doesn't cause you to run away from us. It causes you to run to us, even in, in loving us tough. Uh, these things are all true, but Father, our hearts are still full of unbelief. We, we cower, we still, even though we talk about these things, we still cower, and so we thank you for the, the opportunity to come to this table this morning. Uh, may you overturn our rebellious hearts. May you do away with our unbelief. May you speak peace to every doubt in us this morning at this, at this meal. Uh, we need you to do that great work in us. It's something only you can do. Only your love can quiet us. And so even in this, we pray that, uh, and we pray uh, that you come and be with us, make your presence known to us as we gather around this table this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So the words of the scripture are to us are, don't be surprised uh, when things start to get hard in your life, right? Don't be surprised at fiery trials. Instead, the scripture says, prepare for them. And the way you prepare your hearts for whatever we go into this week, most of us are going to go into the week, we have no idea. We have no idea what this week holds, but the way you prepare your heart for whatever might come your way is to hear the words of this benediction. This benediction are, are the words that should linger over your life no matter what landscape you travel through this week. So hear of his great heart for you. Uh, put your hope and faith in him, uh, and that's the very thing that can prepare you for whatever might come, that you might be unshakable and full of fruit that glorifies and honors him. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.